You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, from a distance yet again, Paul Doroshenko. Kyla, I'm hoping that soon we can start recording these in the office again. But Well, when that time comes, we will have a big announcement about why we're recording them in the office again. I suppose, I suppose we will. As it is right now, here we are recording at a distance using Zoom, which is not bad, but I don't get to see your face. So when I talk too much, I don't know whether or not you're giving me a signal to be quiet. I just always imagine I'm giving you a signal to be quiet. Okay, I can do that. Um, I wanted to talk about first just a little update for our listeners and those in the know as uh I think we mentioned, or did we mention, I don't even know, last week, um, I was in Victoria in Supreme Court all week uh, for an entire week running the constitutional challenge to random breath testing, the BC challenge. Yes, I was discussing this with uh, one of our summer students today. Yeah, I mean, um, and uh, it sounded quite impressive because I was trying to explain mandatory testing, and I was explaining. Well, Kyla went to Ottawa and explained it to the Senate and and the Parliamentary Committee, and the Senate, on the basis of her testimony, removed it from the legislation. But then Parliament put it back, and now she's in Victoria last week arguing that, that it's unconstitutional. And the student was looking at me, and then I said, "Oh, and that's the spot where you're working right now, where Beverly McLaughlin came to record the." the um, cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada, but didn't video. And the student said what? Who's Beverly McLaughlin? No, no. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. <laughs> that would make me feel old. Yeah. Is that new student starting today? I realized, oh, actually, there's quite a bit of history here. Got to yep. back up a little bit. There's lots has gone on. Lots, lots has a, a great number of things have gone on in the office over the years that have had some significant uh, impact and uh, most of them are of course related to you but um yeah you should have got beverly mclaughlin on your on your legal team there yeah somehow i don't think that beverly mclaughlin would be up for like working as a lawyer to constitutionally challenge an impaired driving law probably not not a good look for a former supreme court of canada justice i wonder if she's still working in the whatever court she was still a some foreign court that she was still a court of appeal judge or something hong kong and i think there were some issues with that because it was kind of like a question of whether or not it was like anti-democratic supporting the chinese state type thing Mm. didn't know it was hong kong i thought maybe it was singapore in any event enough about beverly mclaughlin Let's get beverly mclaughlin so the update from the constitutional challenge last week is that like most court cases there is no update judgment is reserved it'll come when it comes the judge basically said you know you've all given me a lot to think about and a lot to to look over so you know as my rule goes a reserve judgment is the same as a win really 
that's 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 a pretty low standard for a win. Get lots of reserve judgments that later come back and they that you don't succeed. I mean, yeah. I don't think you necessarily expect to succeed on this in any event because it's it's looks like it's going to go to the court of appeal. And if it gets to the court of appeal, you might be lucky to get a split so you can go to the Supreme Court of Canada. Otherwise, it'll just be another decision by their our court of appeal. Yeah, because if the Supreme Court, if the BC Supreme Court rules that it's constitutional, then I'll appeal. And yeah. if the um, the BC Supreme Court rules that it's unconstitutional, then obviously the government's going to appeal. So, like, this is really just <clears throat> this entire challenge in some respects felt like an exercise in futility because it didn't really matter what the judge ruled because it, it, it's it's not going to be over. No. No, it's not going to be over. It's just going to keep going. And um, I think few people knew that um, that you do these cases that have significant impact and meaning um, and that uh, have some long-term impacts for our justice system, that you do them pro bono. And uh, I put that out on Twitter last week and people were quite surprised by it. I, I don't think people should, you know, I don't, I, I don't think people should be in the dark about that. You do these things because you think it's the right thing to do. Well, it's also like, you know, I think mandatory breath testing is a, a stark example of government overreach. And I'm in a privileged position in society by virtue of being a lawyer. And I make enough money that I can afford to do some work for free. So why would I not do work for free that, you know, that is aimed at advancing causes that uh, address government oppression. Well, it's not just government oppression. I mean, the reality is you are particularly well-placed to argue this. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens when we get to the next level, if other people are going to want to jump on board. I know that um, there was two or three other lawyers who came and went sort of in uh, who were alongside you at the beginning. Same with the one in, um, in uh, Nova Scotia. Yeah. And you ended up being the last person standing there in Nova Scotia uh, and um, sort of the only one who was all the way through in here in, in the one for mandatory testing in Victoria. Um, I appreciate that you do this and I get that it's hard to have people who can put in that sort of level of commitment for all sorts of reasons. I'm not knocking those people. You know, life changes. You, you end up at a different firm or something like that. Uh, you. you your finances aren't there or you're expecting your client to pay for it. And, you know, that's kind of an <laughs> unlikely occurrence, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, you have the support of our office when you're doing these things too. Uh, but, you know, it is 99%, 99.5% you. Yeah, well, thanks for recognizing it, Paul, because uh, last week, I definitely by the middle of the week was feeling like I should never have done it, never have taken it on, never bothered. I was questioning my life choices. Well, there's a few times that I've told you at the beginning of one of these things that uh, you may feel differently as, <laughs> as things play out down the road. I know I felt differently when I started some of these things and I don't do them anymore because I just don't have the time. I'm also not as passionate about it as you maybe. Um, yeah, I'm definitely not, but, uh, I think I've, uh, I think I've warned you 
and uh, you didn't you did not heed my warning. Well, what do you want me to do? Not heed like start heeding your warnings and then leave the public to fend for itself? I guess I, you know, I was upset that the switching all the different lawyers over that time dragged it out. Oh. And I think this is something that should have been argued within the first year. Um, the law changed December 18th, 2018, and we are, uh, you know, into the end of May 2022 before this is getting to a superior level of court. And that to me, and it's not like it's a situation where, you know, we desperately needed to acquire the evidence. I don't think, you know, the evidence certainly didn't assist the crown from the way you've described it, uh, that they've acquired over the years. Um, the, um, you know, there, for, from your perspective, it was really an issue of the evidence that they present. It wasn't, you know, us running out and trying to accumulate evidence because that's not something that we are ever going to have the resources to do. I mean, the government does. The individual challenging a law doesn't. Um, but uh, And you kind of wish that they would or could, but that was long before you were a lawyer practicing in this area and you realize that we're all just struggling to survive and do the best job we can for our clients on a tight budget all the time. Um, but, um, you know, in the end, it didn't, uh, the evidence didn't get better or worse for anybody. And we just go in and make these challenges like you did in Nova Scotia on the basis of the evidence that the government puts together showing the problems. It seems to me that it should have been something that got on in a year. I agree. But between a pandemic and switching lawyers and procedural hurdles and an absence of judges in court time, here we are after three and a half years of a bad law. Yeah. Well, that's the way she goes. Yep. Anywho, so um, I don't think you want to talk about that. No. And I, what and I want to talk, to talk about is something that's got me so mad, Paul. I'm so yeah. mad. I'm angry. Did you know that it's Indigenous History Month? Uh, yeah, I did. It's also bike uh, bike cycling month. Ew, don't give me other uh, things. And it's, uh, <laughs> and it's um, uh, isn't it Pride Month? It is Pride Month. But I want to talk mm-hmm. about Indigenous History Month because... It's Larry David Appreciation Month as well, I think. There's some racist driving law shit happening in BC. Oh, you're jumping to conclusions, Kyla. No, I am How not. How do you know it's racist? Maybe he was just impatient. I think he's just impatient. All right, let's back up and tell our listeners what's happened. Go ahead. So in um, Mission, over the, I guess it was on the weekend or during the week? I'm not really sure exactly. I think it was on the weekend. I think it was on Saturday. There was a walk um, in honor of the missing children who were found at residential schools. It was organized by um, one of the Indigenous organizations that was local uh, to BC. And the walk took place on the road admission. It's meant to draw people's attention to it, keep the conversation going, help people remember and reflect. And rather than remember and reflect, one driver decided to start honking his horn, demanding that people move, and then ran over four people at this event. Yep. That got people upset, but what got people uh, adding to the upsetness was the way the RCMP described it in their press release. Yes. So the mission RCMP, um, and I'll save my comments, 
on that. Um, the mission RCMP were asked to investigate. Apparently, they sent one officer to the scene who did like a, a half-assed little interview with some people, and then nothing happened. The RCMP um, then put out a press release when this hit the media to the effect that this wasn't a hate crime. It had nothing to do with them being Indigenous. It was all as a result of the fact that this driver was impatient and uh, he was upset that people were walking slowly on the roadway. Now, they have not... Oh, you're, dis- you're describing it the way people spun it. They didn't say this wasn't a hate crime. They said it, it appeared that the... Or they, it was an impatient driver. They're not investigating it as a hate crime mm. or a potential hate crime. Mm. In any event, they, they, um, maybe it has to be premeditated to be a hate crime. It doesn't. It seems to be the, I think, the assumption that they've got there. Anyway, go ahead. The other problem is that when they put this statement out, which in and of itself might make a lot of sense if you'd interviewed the driver and found out why this accident happened, but they did not do that. They didn't even identify who the driver was. They didn't know yet. They hadn't talked to him. They didn't hear his side of the story or why he did it. They had no basis other than absolute sheer speculation that this was because he was impatient and not because he was angry about Indigenous people. Yep. I hear you. So ultimately, there was a huge debate. Lots of people in British Columbia probably already know about it. Uh, People were very upset, particularly the way that it was characterized by the RCMP. Um, And um, it looked like there was a double standard, like the RCMP are not out there to protect Indigenous people. And they're going to downplay this um, incident, um, which... I guess, to the people who are protesting, they viewed as an attack on their protesting and certainly an attack on their bodies, um, which looked like uh, assault with a weapon, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, And dangerous operation of a motor vehicle potentially causing bodily harm for counts of that. Um, And uh, really played down. But things have played out during the course of the week. You're one of those people who was upset about it. I was... uh, People asked me on Twitter to comment on it. And I said, well, hang on. There's something else that the police do here. And this is something that I've dealt with many, many times over the course of my career, where there is a hit and run and my client is being investigated, or I end up involved in it at some other point. And the police give a press release and the police know full well that they are in what they are investigating, but they want to encourage the person to come in and identify themselves as the driver. And one of the ways they do this is they sound like they're maybe on their side, like they just want to get their side of the story. Um, They don't really care at this point. Uh, They want to check box number one, which is putting the person behind the wheel. Other things can be characterized on the basis of video that was there. There's apparently plenty of video. and the description by the individuals, and you might be able to build a hate crime case that might exist. But I think that they were they were baiting their hook to try and lure this guy to come in. And you know what happened? He came in. <laughs> he identified himself. It worked. Whether it would have worked if they said, we think this is a potential hate crime and this is a serious matter. You know, or would he have just lawyered up, which he, you know, 
would have been better for him and the smart thing to do in my summation. Um, but I think that they, I think the police effectively baited him and got him in. And I've seen it before. I've been involved with it before. Police going out and saying, you know what, we just want to talk to the driver. That lots of times where the police have, have been uh, phoning somebody just saying, oh, we just want to make sure you're okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, just make sure you're okay. Yeah, we don't want you to commit suicide because we want to prosecute you. Make sure you're okay. Can you're are you all right? You feel bad about hitting that person, right? What's the driver currently charged with, Paul? Um, well, it's up to the Crown Council to look at the file, Kyla, and make the determination uh, that uh, there is a substantive likelihood of successful prosecution on whatever counts they charge. And I'm sure the video is going to make that decision. And they have one year. What's that? Have criminal charges been forwarded to Crown? I don't know. Maybe they have. Maybe they haven't. But often they will collect all the evidence. And why would they do it immediately when they know the Jordan timeline exists? They're going to want to make sure that they've got everything covered before they do. But there's other angles to this. I heard that the driver on the radio was in his mid to late 70s. For all you know, you could have somebody who had a medical condition. You could have somebody who was uh, who has Alzheimer's. Um, you know these things. You've dealt with those cases, so have I. Um, now, just because you uh, are having a protest on the street doesn't mean that you are uh, safe from the person whose whose circumstances in their brain have changed since the time they were last tested at ICBC to see whether or not they were capable of operating a motor vehicle. I, I've had family members who who developed dementia and, you know, we dealt with the issue of how do you take away their keys? I don't disagree with any of that. Here's the problem. The other evidence that you're maybe not aware of or not considering includes that Mission RCMP has been refusing to take statements from people who are there including people who heard the driver shouting racial slurs. Who, um, that doesn't mean that they're not going to do it, as you know. Uh, Mission RCMP were also asked to provide protection beforehand. Um, and it was such a short period of time beforehand that they were told, yes, we can do it, but we can't swing it right now because of our shifts can you postpone it and so they've got a labor problem right now in the rcmp we know that you know that so if they you know who is characterizing this i bet the rcmp aren't saying we're refusing to take those statements they might be saying i'll take the statement from this person i will get back to you on the next shift to take the statement from the next person so i would not assume that they're not going to take statements from people just because they're not taking from them Taking them from people when it's convenient for those people or when they want to do it right now doesn't mean they're not going to do it. But what about the the recommendations from the Commission on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and all of the government reports that have for decades found that when Indigenous people report crimes, they're not taken as seriously, the crimes are not pursued when they're against Indigenous people as seriously by the prosecution. Shouldn't they be acting with a little bit more dispatch and compassion and thoughtfulness in this situation in light of that? Because when you, when you characterize what they're doing against that 
historical backdrop, it really does fit a pattern of racist and discriminatory treatment. Well, I hear you, and I I acknowledge all of that. I accept everything that you're saying there. Um, But I think sometimes the perception of how the police are doing things versus uh, the way they're doing them is is going to be a problem because the obligation of the police to preserve the integrity of the investigation and secrecy. And yes, I'm sure all of those things still exist in a bad way in Canada. But, you know, I deal with police officers all the time. I'm not saying that they're perfect. Uh, There's, you know, some I think shouldn't be police officers. Uh, But for the most part, I think many officers get that. And I have dealt with officers who are specifically dealing with Indigenous people who, in my view, were cognizant and respectful and and doing their best to be to recognize that without being paternalistic or or importing as little as possible of of their their understanding of how other people should behave approaching it in a very fair manner in my view i'm not saying that this is what took place I, you know i'm just saying i I'm not going to jump down the throat of the Mission RCMP at this point. And I get it that people who are in those circumstances looking at it are saying to themselves, oh, my God, you know, this is what we're going through. But, you know, it's also should be weighed with the knowledge that, you know, it may be something different. Now, remember the the what I say is a murder of of Mr. Jaskanski at the, at the airport, you know, the Mm -hmm. RCMP spin when it first came out was awful. That poor officer who, who was the spokesman was destroyed and distraught. And ultimately he committed suicide. Um, because he was held out and given this information. And then he ended up being the face of this lie. And I'm not, you know, that can happen again. It can happen again. It's not like the officers that, you know, the a 28-year-old or 32-year-old officer out in, in mission is going to be aware of what happened in that case over a decade ago, I think, by now. Um, however, I see legitimate policing reasons for the things that they've done. And so I will, and and I I see it being I've seen all of these things as consistent tactics in other investigations. I I don't disagree with you. As you know, I know what the tactics are in those investigations. And I don't disagree with you that those are tactics that would be used in other investigations. But I do think from a cultural competency and reconciliation standpoint, particularly during Indigenous History Month, The police need to think about different ways of doing things when they're dealing with Indigenous people. The same tactics that work when the victim is a non-Indigenous person might not be appropriate or culturally competent when dealing with Indigenous victims. Well, I also would say that um, no matter what the RCMP do, they get criticized. Well, yes, that's literally And so, And so... If they had dealt with it differently and done it some other way, 
people would criticize them. You know, I, I recently heard a, um, Indigenous leaders speaking about uh, uh, two analogous issues um, in different provinces, and they were complaining about the government from sort of both ends of it. And it's kind of like the conservatives, you know, were were complaining. You got to move, remove. You got to use the Emergencies Act, and and after Trudeau, used, <laughs> the the federal government used the Emergencies Act. The next thing is that you could shouldn't have used the Emergencies Act. It's a totalitarian government. Um, you know, no matter what, when you've got a and in, I mean, in this case, you've got indigenous people who have every reason to look at the federal government and the police forces in this country as suspect. Um, I, I think no matter how they act in these circumstances, they're going to face criticism. Either they will, you know, no, no matter what they do, they will face criticism. And a lot of it, you know, as I think I've legitimately pointed out, is people's lack of knowledge of how the functioning works of how the system works with policing. Now, you know, I don't necessarily like that aspect of it. I was trying to describe somebody to somebody today, um, you know, what happens when the police go down the route of investigating one person and they feel quite confident that they're, you know, they're, they're going after the one suspect who is, who is the, uh, who is the actual person who committed, you know, whatever serious crime and they get far down the road and they realize, you know what, we're wrong. And they switch to somebody else. Well, at that point, the person who they ultimately charge can always point at the other person and say, there's a reasonable doubt. And, you know, it's a silly part of of criminal law that the police have to, you know, once they get somebody in their sights, they almost have to put blinders on. And, you know, and the putting the blinders on just means that you could end up wrongfully charging, wrongfully convicting somebody. Um, you know, this is, these are flaws in our justice system and we have huge flaws in our justice system. If we wanted to sit down and I mean, there's systemic flaws, there's sort of like existential flaws. There's flaws that fail to recognize the humanity in so many different ways. Um, you know, that, that I, 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 the, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial has really caused me to question a lot of it. Um, but these are the problems that the police have, and it really relates to resolving it down the road in court. Well, maybe. At some point, you wanted to give me a dirty look there that I was talking too much. No. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a frustrating thing for me, but uh, I, I've come to the conclusion that the justice system... Um, is is fundamentally flawed in so many ways um, that we and that we've come to accept it on faith. It's faith that it works. You know, <laughs> you can have a completely innocent person, and we deal with people who have immediate roadside prohibitions. And some of them, I am absolutely, I think, you know, if you were to just accept their evidence, uh, as I do when I hear it, if, you know, believable. Logic would tell you that, it, you know, the prohibition should be revoked. But instead, the method that's that's accepted by the court is to go through their evidence and look for any little thing that is sort of not quite right and say, I prefer this evidence on this paper, paper version than this evidence. 
Well, that's like intellectually dishonest. Um, but that's our justice system. You can extrapolate and expand that all the way through. Yeah. You can, you know, and, and that's why do you think there's so many indigenous people in jail? <laughs> you can't get the best evidence when you're an indigenous individual and with limited resources. Well, among many, many other complex reasons why there are so many. I know, but, but it is one of the one of the reasons you, you can be completely honest. And, you know, we've seen times where we are dealing with police officers, some of them we like, some of them we get along with. And you you think to yourself that this police officer is just lying. Um, but, you know, you start thinking about it and you realize, you know, and you talk to them and you realize, you know what, they actually believe that it worked that way. And then there's times that you get that evidence that you can show, like, it just didn't work that way. You got the video and it just didn't work that way. And it's not that the police officer is a bad person, um, but because you have video, you can show that they're just wrong. But when you don't have video, what happens to that individual who's who's alleged to, you know, who's the subject of the of the investigation? They can be completely innocent. And yet they're going down. Which is why cross-examination is one of the most important tools in a lawyer's toolkit by my book. Yes, I know. Um, but what about the people who are lousy witnesses, despite the fact that they're innocent? You know, I, I, it makes it very hard to defend the justice system. I just think that there's so many, so much room for correction and repair. Um, and um, and I, I will never be the one to do it. And realizing it at age 54 with me in this position that I'm in, in my life and career, I will never be the one capable of affecting any of that change. Well, and that's sad and frustrating. You could leave the law, go into politics, become the justice minister. Uh, yeah, I'm too tainted for any of that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, this was profoundly depressing, Paul. Um, both thinking about constitutional challenges that are futile because they're really just creating a record for an appeal. Profoundly depressing thinking about the justice system failing Indigenous people. Why don't we talk well, about that? The record for the appeal, I just want to talk about that for a second. You know, normally when you when you do some sort of constitutional challenge or you, you, you challenge some, okay, you've got a client who's charged and you run a trial and, you know, then it goes to appeal because of whatever reason. Um, we have noticed, like in the Sivia Goodwin case and, and other cases that have gone, that the evidentiary record at the superior court level can be totally augmented when you're going up against the government later on. So the Court of Appeal, they're probably going to come up with more evidence. And then by the time it gets to the Supreme Court of Canada, it's going to be some other interveners coming with more evidence. Um, maybe that's fine. I don't know. There's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Tell me something funny, though. I will tell you something funny, but also kind of something um, not so funny. So this is your The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. <laughs> The Ridiculous Driver of the Week Awesome And Paul, you're going to like her Well, it's not her And it's not her fault 
but the media is making it her fault. So the headline <laughs> is Florida woman performing oral sex on driver causes collision. Well, maybe the driver is the one who caused the collision. I mean, I'm pretty sure he didn't say, no, don't go down on me, baby. Stop, stop doing that. I'm definitely not enjoying it. Don't you know? go down on me, baby. We can make this. That sounds like a song to me. Okay. Um, but yeah. It's not, a, it's not a pleasant thing. Because you can't really pay attention. If you pay attention to the road, then you're not paying attention to what's going on. If you're paying attention to what's going on, then then you crash. I thought all of a sudden you were like talking about oral sex you don't find pleasant. And I was like, I do not need to know these things about you, please. I'm just saying, well, you're driving. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Um, I was young once. But Stupid. Let me tell you, Paul. Apparently, when the collision happened, she nearly bit his penis off. Yeah, that happened in a film uh, with Robin Williams called The World According to Garp. Well, it also happened in Florida. And it was not, uh, there was an accident, but they were parked in a Volvo wagon. And it wasn't Robin Williams. It was the uh, the uh, boy Robin Williams' um, wife was having a affair with. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's a dangerous thing. And that should be a lesson to everybody. That film provided great discouragement to trying that for a long time. And I guess it hasn't been in a film in a long time. Maybe we meet, need a remake. You, you have to go to the Daily Mail and check out the photos because the Daily Mail unabashedly will post the photos that other people don't get to see. And you can see like the dude lying on the ground with his pants around his ankles and the woman lying on the ground with uh, no pants on. <laughs> was this in Florida by chance? Did you say that? Yes. Yeah. It was. Of course it was in Florida. One wonders what happens when people cross the border to Florida. Well, I've been to Florida. Florida's I know. Great. I know, but what happened? Why does certain people get to Florida and just decide to do ridiculously stupid things? Especially when they've got like these huge long jail sentences. Obviously, jail is not a deterrent. No, jail is not a deterrent. Numerous studies have shown that jail is neither a deterrent nor serves any rehabilitative or um, or corrective effect. Do you think being on the Daily Mail or whatever that was is a deterrent? Yes. If I were on the Daily Mail for nothing good, I would be I I would be deterred future behavior but it doesn't deter you from doing it in the first place because you assume you're not going to be on the front of the daily mail well maybe our sentencing laws should change to eliminate jail with your story gets published in the daily mail yeah uh no <laughs> although although it might be fair i don't know it might, might be fair it might be fair and effective um anyway i love it i love the roadhead penis biting off Florida woman. And I love the inherent sexism. I mean, sarcastically love the inherent sexism in saying that uh, it's her fault that he made a choice to continue driving while getting fellatio performed on him. He could have stopped and said no. He could have just said no and maybe she would have stopped. I mean, yeah. you know, if he said no, it would have been a sex assault. Could have pulled over. Could have pulled over and continued and then kept driving. 
Although that might have been an offense in Florida too. I don't know. In a car. I don't know. At the end of the day, he was the one in control of the vehicle. Yeah, but she's really the one in control of him at that point, isn't she? No. No. Isn't that what the Daily Mail is suggesting? This is this is this is a sexist um, notion about women that women somehow assume control over men with their wily sexuality. It doesn't work that way. Foul temptresses. Is that what you're saying? If you all can't control your brains, that's not a woman's problem. And if a woman is smart enough to exploit that, again, that's on you. Yeah, can't blame women for exploiting that one. Men are kind of stupid. Well, this is the thing. Men are stupid. Um, I've met plenty of stupid women too. So maybe it's just a human thing, but men are stupid in a different way. They're simple. Oh, the uh, and I can't say that either one of those people appear to be particularly intelligent engaging <laughs> in such activity. Yeah, I don't think those people are winning any IQ contests anytime soon. Yeah. Imagine like the airbag going off in those circumstances probably can't be good. Not very, you know, like you're supposed to be in a seated position. What's the airbag going to do to you when you're bent over somebody else in the car? What's the airbag going to do do to you while you you have your pants down in that situation too? I mean, we only know about what happened to the guy's dick. Yep. Well, uh, that's. Uh, one that kind of makes me cringe, and I don't, uh, I don't really want to discuss it anymore. Well, you're in luck because that's our podcast. So, if you have a driving law related issue and need to get a hold of us, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 